everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Behind the Stigma podcast. I'm your host, Yara Minova, and in today's episode, we will be discussing the topic of psychosis. Let's get started. Our guest speaker today, who I'm very humbled to introduce, is Sir Professor Robin Murray. Professor Murray is a Scottish psychiatrist and professor of psychiatric research at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College London. He has written over 800 articles and is one of the most frequently cited psychosis researchers in the world. He has supervised over 72 PhDs, and 40 of his students have become full professors. He was also elected a Fellow of the Royal Society in 2010 and received knighthood in 2011. What an honor to have him here with us today. Professor Murray, welcome to the podcast. It's truly a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. So I'm sure your journey as a researcher, professor, and psychiatrist is filled with so many lessons learned and important experiences that contribute to this field of research, uh, some of which I'm hoping to speak to you about today. But to start off, perhaps as I always like to do, is to introduce and get back to the basic of definitions, uh, in particular with how the field defines psychosis and schizophrenia. Now, I know in your clinical work, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you do not use the term schizophrenia, but generally when clinicians are diagnosing, what do we mean when we say psychosis and schizophrenia, and how do they differ in how they are understood in psychiatry? So these are not diseases. They're just constellations of symptoms. So when we talk about psychosis, it's really just a sort of posh name for having hallucinations. That's to say, hearing or seeing things that are not really there, or having delusions. That's having bizarre ideas, and not just bizarre ideas, because many of us have bizarre ideas, but ones that are not shared by one's family and friends, and they're off, these can often be paranoid. I, so that the, the, the idea that people are against one. And uh, mm. so hallucinations, delusions, and s- strange behavior, that's really all that, uh, that psychosis is. And quite often people can have a brief psychosis. It can last just for a day or two or a week or two. But if it goes on for a prolonged time and it's more difficult to treat, then many psychiatrists would call it schizophrenia. That makes sense. So essentially the difference is in terms of how long, how long the duration of the experiences are. Yeah, or, and, and the severity. But uh, schizophrenia is also a contentious term because historically it rather implied deterioration, which, which I don't right. agree with. Right. Thank you for the clarification. It's interesting because the term schizophrenia ignites a lot of stigma, unfortunately, as I'm sure you know. Um, It's perhaps one of the most stigmatizing conditions, not only with the public, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, among professionals and clinicians, unfortunately, as well. And sometimes the word schizophrenia can be seen synonymous to insane, which I think, again, comes back to the history and the past of, of this terminology. Um, And sometimes when I speak to people about the topic, they say, oh, you mean the mental or the insane? (laughs) And then it becomes hard to go into this topic and say, well, no, actually, they're not insane. It's just different forms of experiences. And some of these experiences range on one side of the spectrum than the other. How do you view this in terms of how we understand the so-called norm from the, you know, not normal when it comes to our 
um, experiences of feelings of paranoia or you know delusions and hallucinations? And it's a good question because I think we used to think that ninety eight percent of the population were sane and two percent of the population were insane. I and uh, we thought that uh, insane people. I, I w- would be w- w- would really be insane in all regards, and that sane mm-hmm. people would be in, in, in sane in all regards. But of course, that was before the arrival of Donald Trump. So it's <laughs> normal normal people are not normal. <laughs> Many normal people are not uh, very normal. So there's a sort of I'm not suggesting that he's psychotic. There is a spectrum of normality, right. and it goes from people who have a who are very trusting and who uh, have no feelings of paranoia whatsoever to people who may be a little bit more suspicious and uh, people who then have eccentric ideas and uh, are very prone to conspiracy theories. And then mm. going past that, you get into people that you you, you may have friends that who, who you always know that they're very touchy and they may uh, end up thinking people are against them when it's just a coincidence. And then you have people who... Uh, may have a brief psychotic period, uh, you know, even for a few hours and then for Mm -hmm. a longer period. And then uh, you have, uh, as I say, people who are hallucinated and deluded uh, and have to seek help for it. So so psychiatric disorders are not, in my view, uh, Mm -hmm. discrete diseases. They're, they're, They're the extremes of a dimension. So just as as we have a a, a dimension of weight from the very skinny uh, through the average to the overweight to to the obese, the way we have have similarly a a dimension of a proneness to psychosis. Wow. I think this is a very, very important point because um, you've spoken about this before and you, you mentioned it now in terms of how we see it as a discrete, how we see schizophrenia or, you know, the concept as a discrete. So you you either have it or you don't. But what you're saying is so important because actually it doesn't work like that, right? Human beings, we exist, all of our emotions, all of our experience, they exist on a continuum. And um, it's very true. I'm actually, I have a lot of paranoid tendencies. Um, a lot of the times I think someone's following me when they're probably not. <laughs> so um, it doesn't mean it hasn't reached another extreme point. But you're absolutely right in saying that we can be paranoid. And I know you've, I've, you know, you've written a lot about this as well. So it's a very important distinction to make, especially for people who are not in the field, to understand that this is not just, this is not a, like a, we'll get into the biology of it, but it is on a continuum and not, you know, something that you either have or you don't. Yeah, and I think we all, we all probably experience paranoia when you, uh, <laughs> when you, when you fail an exam or a, uh, when when you you're not getting getting when you th- not getting on with your boss or something you you think uh, they, he hates they, me they, they, they don't like Scotsmen uh, or or <laughs> uh, they're, they're against blondes or whatever they they're, they're prejudiced against me and then you actually because I'm because I'm the editor of a of a journal when when they, when you know academics send their papers to me and I. I get them refereed and I write back to them saying, I'm afraid the referees have said uh, that your papers say it's not good enough for us to publish. Then Mm -hmm. quite a lot of academics, they have a brief period of paranoia where they say, why why did you get my worst enemy to to review my paper? 
I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're just prejudiced against this. And then they sometimes a week or two later, they write apologizing, saying that they, they oh recovered, my gosh, they'd recovered from their paranoia. So I think I think we we we, we <laughs> many of us experience this. It just usually lasts for a, a few minutes or a few hours. That's so fascinating. I think generally us as humans, we tend to fear. Um, what we don't understand or you know we can get into these kind of paranoid tendencies but it's still important to understand now that these are experiences that can happen and just because it's unknown or unfamiliar because hearing voices and you know seeing things it can be scary but it has so much unnecessary stigma for the people who do experience it so um i think it's very important to just um clarify this and your work is so important in demystifying this, which can help apply a key of compassion uh, for people having these experiences. Yeah, the, one of the things is that hearing voices is actually rather more common than uh, psychiatrists tend to think because the mm -hmm. people who come to see psychiatrists are people who hear nasty voices, who hear voices that are a, a detrimental to, a, a, in some way to them. But there are lots of people who hear happy voices mm. or reassuring voices. I, uh, for ex I, I'll give you an example. I had a very good friend whose wife died, and he was very miserable and, uh, and depressed for about 18 months. And after, mm. after that, he suddenly re recovered and got better. And I asked him, what, what has happened? How, do, how did you suddenly get milked back to your normal self? And he said, well, I hear Irene. She speaks to me. Uh, mm. And uh, all, these, all these months, uh, I thought I'd lost her. But now I can, I can speak to her. And she talks to me. And she says, pull yourself together. Get, get on with life. Are you looking after <laughs> the children? Don't mope about. And he says, Say, this, is, this has encouraged me. And so this has continued for, for many years. So I, you can have these helpful voices as well. And, and of course, he, he's not going to see a psychiatrist because he's, uh, it's something that's helpful to him. But, but the people who come to see us, by and large, are people who have voices that are nasty to them. Wow. Thank you for sharing this story. That's very beautiful. And a lot of food for thought there. Essentially, it kind of seems that we would use the label schizophrenia when the voices has a negative connotation to it. Or more or less it's it's the significance of the experience um and how i guess how much suffering it imposes on the person but that's a that's a very beautiful story so thank you for sharing that professor Mary, you're known as one of the world's most uh, influential researchers in psychiatry and so i really wanted to talk to you about this the shift you perhaps have seen there must have been a big shift from you know, deinstitutionalization around the 1970s. How do you feel or do you feel there is a difference when it comes to uh, psychiatric care for people who experience um, psychosis? And also maybe here you can add a little bit about how you came to psychiatry and what sparked your interest in the research in psychosis as well. Well, starting first, I think that there, there's no doubt there's been a huge and beneficial change, at least in the in 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 the UK, in that we no longer have uh, big asylums. So when I was a medical student, I actually uh, lived in a, a big mental hospital for two years, and we 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 were given free board and lodgings in exchange that we did physical examinations on the patients because by law. 
patients who were in hospital for more than a year had to have a physical examination once a year. And uh, many of the patients were actually had actually been living there for 5, 10, 15 or 20 years. Oh so they had come into hospital and then they hadn't recovered and gradually their own family sort of forgot about them and uh, maybe lived far away. So even if they got considerably better, they had nowhere else to go. So, uh, so, and there were some nice aspects of uh, of the big mental hospital that they had. Uh, they, they know, for example, our hospital had a, had a, had a football team and they could could could, could play cricket or uh, or golf actually. And uh, so there was there was uh, some and there, there was recreations and uh, occupational therapy. But basically, mm-hmm. people were sort of warehoused. In, in these big uh, asylums, and there were very there were a number of scandals uh, 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 about them. I certainly worked one summer in a hospital where the patients had no toilet. The ward had no toilet paper. Patients had a brush and uh, instead of a toilet toilet paper, and the the head mm-hmm. nurse had uh, a sock with sand in it that he he would uh, uh, threaten people with. So they they, they were they were very bad in many ways and then so people people patients themselves i much prefer to be in the community rather than than in a big psychiatric hospital so gradually people were discharged into community facilities and uh, we were able to close down these big big asylums now in theory this should have worked very well uh, if we mm. had, if all the resources that had gone into these big asylums had been transferred to looking after people in the community, we would have been doing quite well. But unfortunately, some of the resources got siphoned off and went to uh, other aspects of other parts of medicine. So we don't mm. have enough proper community care, and uh, sometimes the, the community doesn't care. So people can get lost, or they can uh, mm. they, they, they they can become isolated in the community and not not have either any social or uh, pharmacological treatment. So in theory, it's a, it's a very good approach. And some countries it works very well. My wife is Italian and in Italy, community care works quite well. Just for our listeners that aren't familiar with the term community care, do you mind defining what consists of community care? Sure. Thank you. So community care was the idea that people with say, psychotic illnesses and even people who are still uh, having symptoms that they can manage it, they can manage in the community and they might say uh, they might to be living in their own flat but if they're not able to live in their own flat they might live in a hostel or they might live in a a, a, a place a place with with nursing support where it could be ensured that they, they got their medication. So there are, there are sort of levels. So you would go from the hospital to a place where you had a lot of nursing support and, and social support. And if, then if you were doing well, you can uh, go to a place where you maybe uh, go to a house with uh, three or four different uh, flats in it. And then you would go on to a, a totally normal flat and, and go back to work. So the theory of it was that uh, people should gradually be rehabilitated. And uh, it uh, it uh, in many places it, it works very well. In, in 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 the big cities, the trouble is that people tend to get lost, and uh, mm. of course the councils are supposed to 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 provide the support for the for the the housing and so on. And of, of course, as as everyone knows, I. Local councils don't have a lot of money just now, so the community care is 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 not always working well, and sometimes people end up in the streets, or sometimes people end up 
in jail. So it's one of the sort of curious things that as mm. the mental institutions have declined, the number of psychiatric patients in jail has increased. So mm. in some ways, people have been transferred from mental hospitals to jails. I, but the majority of people I, with psychosis can now live in the, and, and, and get on better in the general, in the general population. You were mentioning about your wife being from Italy, and then I interrupted you. I think you had an important point there about um, on the areas. Well, well it, it seems that, uh, first of all, psychosis doesn't seem to be so common in Southern Europe as it is in, 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 in Northern Europe. And uh, so there, aren't, there isn't so much of a strain on, on the services. But also, mm. I think I, there's been less of a family breakdown uh, particularly in southern Italy. So social support from f- family and the church and so on, I think, is, is, is greater there. And sadly, in some, some of our big cities, it's very easy to become isolated and, mm. uh, and lost and uh, you know, b- end up living in a, 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 in a tower block and uh, not knowing one's neighbours or being frightened of one's neighbours uh, and not having a GP and uh, really having no, 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 no social contact. So I think all of that uh, tends to make it much more difficult for people to, get to cope in the community. Absolutely. And, and it makes complete sense. Um, it's almost intuitive that if you're socially isolated or if you're in an environment and today we know how important a nurturing environment is. So if you, like you mentioned in the past, if someone doesn't have a necessity, a basic necessity like toilet paper and there's, there are people that are, they're being surrounded by people who treat them badly, your, your mental health will naturally deteriorate even on people who don't experience psychosis. So, um, but we'll, we'll definitely get into the environmental factors of it, but perhaps now, um, we can talk a little bit about the onset and risk factors. And I'd first like to focus on the biological factors because um, many think, and we don't know the right answer or the wrong answer to that, but that schizophrenia is a brain disease, right? Or a brain disorder. Well, what do we currently know about the biological factors? Can we confidently point towards a common variant gene or? Yeah. So I think schizophrenia is a brain disease in the same sort of sense as asthma is a lung disease. So asthma mm-hmm. involves the inflammation and uh, of the lining of the bronchi and the lungs and the difficulty in the air getting through. But we know that asthma is often precipitated by pollution and mm-hmm. that toxins in the air can initiate asthma and make it, wor- make it worse. Now, the brain is involved in processing uh, the social environment. So just as there are toxins in the air, there can be social toxins. So adverse things can happen to people, which changes the brain. So it's a, it's a psychosis really is at the interaction between the biological and the social. So it used to be thought schizophrenia was just a, a brain disease and, and that it was a, a genetic. But we know, and we know that there is a, a susceptibility, mm-hmm. but we know that social factors are very important. So starting with the, the, the genetics, that there are, it, it is modestly, there is a, a, a modestly heritable component to schizophrenia. So things like, uh, well, like asthma that I spoke about, or diabetes, or 
heart disease, all of these things are a little bit familial, but you can get them without having any family history. And it's the same with schizophrenia, that you can mm-hmm. inherit a vulnerability. You do not inherit a certainty of develop, uh, developing schizophrenia. It's not that bang, you get the right genes and bang, you get schizophrenia. But there are lots of tiny little genes that make you more vulnerable. Uh, so, so far, we've identified about 260 little genes which can act all together uh, and can make you more susceptible. So just in the same way as lots of little genes will make some people taller or some people smaller or some people more (laughs) intelligent or some people less intelligent, some people fatter or uh, stocky, more muscly than others. There are are these susceptibility genes. But you can be an identical twin and have a, a, your identical twin can have schizophrenia and you can be fine. So it can it shows that even if you have the same genes as somebody who develops the illness, you will not necessarily develop it. About half 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 in half of the cases where a person with schizophrenia has a co-twin who is identical, they will also get it. But in the other half they won't. And that depends really on what happens to you throughout your life. Right. So so uh, we we know for example that say uh, if you're premature uh, or your mother has very, been very ill during pregnancy, or she has a very long labor and you get short of oxygen during the birth process, then this can slightly mess up the wiring of the cortex. And this can make you more uh, prone to schizophrenia l- later in life. And then we know that uh, being abused as a child, uh, can well, it, it, being abused as a child increases your uh, your chances of having all sorts of psychiatric disorders, from depression to PTSD to addiction to psychosis as well. And then we know that being a migrant increases your risk, mm. uh, or from an ethnic minority. And then we know that uh, abusing drugs increases your risk. And then uh, being bullied or having adverse life events it also increases your risk. So there are these, sometimes they're called component causes or contributory causes that uh, interact and increase. Uh, if you have if you have a genetic susceptibility and then you're premature or if you're premature and uh, then you abuse drugs or uh, you, have, you have several of these risk factors that can push you over the threshold into psychosis. Right. Yeah, so it seems... To your point, it's like the role of epigenetics is very important here. The way your genes and your environment interact, although you may have a genetic susceptibility, your environment may trigger it, but it doesn't necessarily always mean that you will develop the the certain condition or the the experiences. So if, if, for example, we take being premature or being being hypoxic, being short of oxygen at birth, that increases your chances fourfold. That means that four out of 100 people uh, will develop a psychosis instead of one or develop severe psychosis instead of one. But the vast majority of people who are premature or have, mm-hmm. uh, are, have, are a little hypoxic at birth are fine. Uh, or if you think of uh, drug use, taking using methamphetamine, for example, is a risk factor uh, or using cocaine is a risk factor for developing psychosis. The majority of people who use cocaine don't go psychotic, but the minority do. Mm. It's like yeah. it's like uh, I guess everybody has has uh, has had a grandfather who smoked uh, twenty twenty cigarettes a day or forty six <laughs> cigarettes a day all his life and he's ninety five and healthy. 
but uh, he's just been lucky. He's he's increased his chances <laughs> of lung cancer, but he he didn't get it. Oh, bless! That reminds that reminds of my grandpa. <laughs> he was one of those. Now, I know that in the last two decades, and you already mentioned a couple of them already, that social determinants of schizophrenia have been studied quite extensively. And I know you've spoken a lot about, like you said before, child abuse, but also things like urbanization. So like living in populated um, or like busy cities, as well as migration and then adverse life events. And then one of the most prominent, I think, of your recent research is drug abuse and the potency of cannabis. Can we talk a little bit about that as well? Uh, maybe if you briefly want to talk, touch upon urbanization and migration, and then also uh, cannabis and what is the correlation? What what can, do we currently know about the correlation between psychosis and cannabis use? So, starting with urbanization. So, right. essentially, if you grow up in the inner city, you are twice as likely to, or at least twice as likely to develop psychosis than if you grow up in the countryside. And nobody quite knows why this is. It, uh, it may, it, of course, it may be that in the inner city, it's riskier, uh, and particularly areas where there's crime. And that's not difficult to understand that, because if there's, if a uh, if you're worried about what will happen to you or if you see something terrible happening in the street, you're more likely to be fearful. And if you have a mm. slight tendency to paranoia, then you may that may push you into paranoia. For example, I can think of a, a young man, 19-year-old, who was getting on fine. I mm -hmm. had a job and a girlfriend, and then he saw a murder in the street. And uh, he went to the police and said he knew who it was. But he was visited by friends of the murderer who said, it will not be in your interest to, to uh, oh. make a statement. So, so he withdrew his statement. But from that day onwards, he began to think the gang were following him. And oh uh, eventually God. he thought he heard the voices of the gang. And eventually he was so frightened he wouldn't go out of his bedroom because of, because of that. So living in an area where that right. might happen to you can precipitate a psychosis. I, so in the vulnerable, then we know that migration, and if you think what is involved in migration, I mean, sometimes migration is nice and smooth and somebody, you're offered a job or you're offered a university place in a different country, you just get on a plane and go there. So that's not traumatic, not very traumatic. But you think of, of people from Syria whose families Absolutely. have been, uh, been slaughtered or uh, and then they have to try and get a boat uh, they, 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 they try and get themselves smuggled into Turkey and then they get themselves on a boat smuggled across into Greece or Italy and these boats some of their boats sink and their friends die and eventually uh, they, they eventually get to a country like or they, they, they may uh, eventually get to the UK and they think, thank goodness I've, I've arrived here and I'll be looked after. And, and they find, of course, the population isn't always very pleased to see them or sometimes mm -hmm. people shout at them to go home. So there's a lot of, uh, of, of, of uh, adversity associated with, 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 uh, with migrating. And also, if you don't understand the language and the culture. For example, mm -hmm. I remember when I went, I went to, I've been to in Japan uh, twice, but the first time I went and I couldn't understand the language and I couldn't understand the signs in the street mm -hmm. and uh, you feel a bit bewildered and you, yeah. you don't know who to trust. I always say to people, would you buy a secondhand car from, uh, say you were in- a Random. 
So I, I, I take it to the, think of our, 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 of our country. A, a, I mean, it's tricky enough buying a second car because you don't know if you're being conned or not. But if you're trying to do it in a lang- in a, a foreign country where you don't understand right. the language and the, and you you're not good at sort of judging whether this guy is a crook or not. So when you're when you're not in, in your in your sort of a home area, uh, then you're more prone to paranoia. Right? So it's a, yeah. it's a, in some ways it's a sort of defence. So childhood abuse, urban urbanicity, uh, migration, and then the the one which has changed the most has been drug abuse because uh, mm. it's not so much that uh, at least in Europe that they 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 there are more there 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 maybe there's more slightly more people living in cities, but it's not huge. But certainly there's far more people using drugs nowadays than that than there used to be, and it's clear that this has been associated with an increase in the frequency of uh, of psychosis in those areas where. People are particularly people are using high potency cannabis, so that's one of the reasons why psychosis is less common in southern Europe than in places like uh, like Holland uh, uh, and the UK, where uh, a use of high potency cannabis has become quite common. Yeah, and it's also I think like the drugs itself have changed, right? There's um, before it was maybe just one cannabis. Now there's like a hundred different types of yes, novel psych. They're called I think novel psycho psychoactive substances, and these are chemically based. God knows what is put inside these things, and they're yeah. stronger, way way stronger. Mm. There's two. There's two aspects of that. Firstly. Plant cannabis has become right. stronger. So in the 60s and 70s, when we think of, of cannabis and the, and the hippies and so on, it was about 2 or 3 4% THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, the active ingredient. Right. Now in the UK, it's about 15, 15%. I, but uh, when I talk to people from Colorado or California and I say a, what we call skunk or sensimilla is a high potency cannabis, they laugh at me and they say, if only the people, if only our patients here would, were, were taking a skunk, they say, they say that here you can get 20, 30, 40, 60, 80, oh, wow. 90, 95% THC. Uh, wow. And uh, as a, uh, Cannabis legalization has liberalized. People have been smoking more and more concentrated mm-hmm. uh, uh, cannabis, and then also edibles. Uh, so these are, of course, these are plant-based. What you were mentioning was that you can also get uh, synthetic cannabinoids. Right. So THC is what they call a partial agonist. It there's a a receptor in the brain uh, called the the cannabinoid receptor one, and uh, the 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 cannabis partially activates it but these synthetic cannabinoids they are 100% activated this receptor so they are much more strong and mm-hmm. also they're usually not tested in animals or any human subject some some chemist in Israel or a or, or China a fiddles about with a molecule and comes up with a molecule that a, a new molecule that hits the CB1 receptor but it may hit all sorts of other things as well so now and again, you get people who uh, are, they're taking what they think is a synthetic cannabinoid, but it damages their lungs or their kidneys as well. So they are much, these, mm-hmm. these synthetic cannabinoids, sometimes called SPICE or, 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 yeah. or K2, uh, they, they uh, are more risky. And of course, they're often taken, they're often taken by homeless people. You know, if you're, if you're out in the street 
on a wet, if you're lying on the street in a miserable November night uh, and it's pouring buckets, mm. then you either get drunk or you knock yourself out with uh, with spice and that gets you through mm. through to the morning. But uh, they, they certainly are more risky than traditional cannabis. Yeah. It seems like a lot of our issues are stemmed in societal issues. Like things you mentioned, the 19-year-old guy who, you know, who's faced with witnessing murder that's an that's an insane thing to experience for a 19 year old kid like he's essentially a child you know and then you mentioned the migration there's actually a really cool um movie on netflix called swimmers and it's about syrian uh refugees two um syrian girls that became olympic champion one of them became an olympic champion for for swimmers and it's a beautiful story she's now like um an ambassador for the unhcr so she's advocating for like refugees an absolutely beautiful story but you see her story and it's heartbreaking like you mentioned that they're traveling from syria to to get to greece on this tiny little boat with like 18 people in it and so yeah, it's it's interesting how you're mentioning these these factors like crime and migration and that they impact. Um, they, 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 these things happen to lots and lots of people, and some, like the ladies you mentioned, mm-hmm. are very resilient, and it, right. they, they can almost seem to be strengthened by the the things they've endured. But other other right. people become ill, and I guess that may be that where the the susceptibility comes to the genetic susceptibility. Uh, or the social support. I guess if you're if you're in a terrible situation, but you have a supportive mum or you have very supportive friends, then uh, the the the, uh, the 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 adversity can 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 be can be minimized. So it's a, it's it's a complex uh, it's complex whether somebody will be pushed into being a psychotic, and if so, whether they'll be pushed into just a transient psychosis or whether it might last for months or years. Absolutely. And um, Professor Murray, I think I heard this on one of your episodes. You mentioned you made you did an interview with Ziggy Marley. Is that correct? That you spoke to? He and I were jointly, <laughs> jointly interviewed. I was a bit starstruck because I've been, uh, <laughs> I've been a, a, a great uh, fan of his, particularly of his dad for many, many Me years. Too. But I also like him. And he was very interesting because uh, he lives in California, and you would think that he would be totally in favor of a. Well, he was in favor of legalization, but what he wasn't right. in favor of was commercialization. And he said you had to treat cannabis with respect. And of right. course, coming from a Jamaican, from a Rastafarian background, right. uh, Rastafarians uh, treat it as a, 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 in a, relig- a religious way. And uh, the, he he said that you sh- you need to treat the plant with respect and not just smoke one joint after another for uh, for 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 enjoyment and also he was against the the high potency cannabis actually rastafarians in mm. general tend to, tend to to prefer old fashioned cannabis so uh, it was it was it was very nice actually he was a very nice man yeah. actually mm. yeah I, th- I think that's a very important message. Professor Murray, I'm very cautious of the time, although um, I, I do have um, a couple questions. Let's see what we get here. I okay. wanted to, well, I did want to talk to you about your thoughts on prescription, um, antipsychotic prescription, dopamine sensitivity, and your thoughts on antipsychotic medication and recovery without it. I know there's a lot of great organizations, things like Rethink, Hearing Voices Network, that show that schizophrenia or psychosis can be, how do I say, 
can be recovered without medications. So I wanted to know your thoughts on your whole journey so far about your thoughts on antipsychotics and whether people can recover without the use of medication. Well, I think it depends how severe. So if you have, if you take an, an excess of drugs and go psychotic tonight, you don't take any drugs uh, I, and, and you've never gone psychotic before, you might be just lucky and it might just disappear after two or three days spontaneously. But mm-hmm. for people who have more serious psychotic illness, I think it is a, it's very helpful to have a, an antipsychotic for at least for a short period. The longer that people are psychotic, the more difficult it is to recover. And it's, it's not very difficult to understand that because you and I, our memories and our, our mind is full of our work, our holidays, our friends, all sorts of mostly nice things in our memories. But if you're psychotic and your memories are full of hallucinations and delusions I, for the last six months, then it's much more difficult to lose them than if you've just had them for, for two or three days. I, so I, mm. getting, a, getting a, a treatment a, quite fast I think it is useful. But then there is the question that once you've recovered, how long do you have to stay on antipsychotics? And right. drug companies, of course, are quite keen you should stay on them forever. And uh, some psychiatrists, I think, tend to think that schizophrenia is a lifetime disorder, but you can recover from schizophrenia. Mm. And uh, in about a, about a, when we followed up people who were, had a psychotic episode 10 years later, we found that uh, 40% of them had no psychotic symptoms. Now, half of them were still taking antipsychotics, but a fifth of them had had a severe, psycho- at least a severe psychotic episode, I, but they had managed to recover and managed to get, to get off, off medication. So I think antipsychotics are uh, very useful, and uh, certainly in the acute phase, I think people should have antipsychotics mm. in, in modest amounts, I, but say... Uh, Thereafter, I think psychiatrists should be trying to work with the patient to try and see how how little antipsychotic they can manage with. Now, you can gradually try and decrease the medication, but always say to the person, now, if the symptoms come back, we may have to stop and we may have to increase the dose a little bit temporarily. But it would be our intention to try and get the dose down as low as possible and maybe to nothing. Right. I think... As an amateur of someone who's, you know, read your work and others, to me, it seems like getting psychosis or these experiences, they're not meaningless or they're not just something that's gone wrong. People's experiences or psychotic experiences usually have a meaning to them. And sometimes over prescribing or prolonging medication may, um, we may forget that these experiences are something that needs to be looked at on a more deeper level rather than saying that you need to be on prescription your whole life. Would you agree or disagree with this? Do you think that psychiatrists, those that tend to see it as a lifelong issue, tend to neglect or do not think of schizophrenia as a disorder or as a concept that actually has a meaning to why it's it's been there, like you mentioned of the young boy and then people who have migrated and et cetera? There, there, there were in the 60s, 
R.D. Lang and others yes. had, had rather fanciful ideas that that it 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 was a journey it was a it was a a journey through through life which could be beneficial to you. I do not think that, that psychosis is beneficial to people, but I certainly mm-hmm. think that it, it it may often it, it may often be people's delusions may arise out of real uh, concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of a lady who. Uh, who had developed a psychotic illness, but she was plagued by voices which said, they're going to take your children away. And Mm -hmm. uh, also that your husband's having an affair. Now, she had been in hospital and she had two children. And of course, it's a natural thing to worry about. Would the social workers take away your children because you weren't able to look after them? Or that if you were in hospital, then maybe your husband would go and have an affair. So, but instead of, Instead of uh, having this as a worry, she had this as voices, that somehow her her thoughts are transformed into voices. I think that's uh, what uh, one should always be trying to to understand if what what has triggered the the delusional ideas. And that's a lot easier at the beginning of an illness rather than if it's been going for for a number of years. But I think people need to have, not everybody likes psychological treatment or CBT, but everybody mm. should be should be offered it. Uh, and I think it's the combination of uh, CBT and uh, of medication which can which can help most people. Thank you for the clarification. Professor Murray, as a final question, you mentioned in one of your recent articles that you expect to see the end of the concept of schizophrenia soon. In all of your wonderful years in the field, what is some of the reflection of your work and your advice perhaps that you would give to future psychiatrists? And then finally, what do you think is the future of mental health care for so-called schizophrenia and how should it look like? Well, I think the good thing that's happened is I think psychiatrists have become much more eclectic. When I was young, you tended to get psychiatrists who were very biological or psychiatrists who were analytical or psychiatrists who were interested in behavior therapy or in in mm. social therapy. And they all argued. Sometimes it was said that you go to a, you went to a psychiatrist and the treatment you got depended on the kind of psychiatrist you had rather than what was <laughs> wrong with you. But I think nowadays uh, psychiatrists, uh, younger psychiatrists are trained in a much more eclectic way to borrow a bit here so maybe psychotherapy is useful here, drugs are useful here, uh, social rehabilitation is, is, is useful here. So I think uh, the the psychiatry the sort of ideology of psychiatrists has improved uh, a lot yeah. and of course the great thing is that it used to be that was there were really just psychiatrists and nurses in the field but now we have uh, we 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 have particularly uh, clinical psychologists can who can be very useful and uh, where it's properly funded a therapeutic team with a uh, clinical psychologists a uh, social worker a uh, psychiatrists and occupational therapists and indeed patient advocates themselves. So I think yeah. uh, in theory, we can offer so much more. Sadly, the funding is not always there. I think so. I think I think that's the sadness that, that I have at present, that, that the quality of care has declined with, with Tory austerity so that the, the NHS is not as good and the mental health services are not as good as they were uh, 10 years ago. But hopefully, that hopefully that will improve. And uh, I would think that we will 
get a better understanding of schizophrenia or psychosis. They are sort of umbrella terms, and probably there are different conditions that are put in that are in, are, are put into the, uh, into these terms, and we'll be able to delineate them more clearly. And for example, the treatment for somebody who has gone psychotic following child abuse is going to be quite different from the treatment for somebody who's developed psychosis following a methamphetamine use or mm. somebody who has, say, has say, suddenly had a, a very adverse life event versus somebody who comes from a family with perhaps there are several people with, with psychosis. So I think it will become much more precise in understanding uh, psychiatric disorders and uh, not have the same sort of... Uh, what tends to be a bit the case, uh, one type of treatment fits everybody. So I think it will it'll be more uh, precise. Professor Murray, this has been an absolute pleasure. I'm so grateful for your time and your input. It's been truly a wonderful discussion. So thank you. Thank you very much for, for talking with me and uh, chatting about, uh, about the illness. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. If you like this episode, please do subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast hosting site. I will be linking Sir Professor Robin Murray's work to this episode description, so do have a further read into some of his work if interested. Thanks again, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Bye-bye.